now we pray as we turn to your word that you would give us hearts to receive, ears open to hear. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week, we, uh, the big deal was uh, getting to identify the whole, who is this? And for those of you who are here, you remember we identified who the new James Bond was going to be. That was great. Uh, and then we moved from there, from identifying who Jesus is, and finished at the point of when we identify who He is, He then defines who we are. When we figure out who He is, He tells us who we are. And so, you, you, well, we didn't show these pictures, but... You'll get it, right? Who's this? Awesome. There you go. Rocky. Yes. And who's this next one? The Rock. Yes. And so who were we talking about last week? Peter. Peter, who is? The Rock. And I'm sure Peter looked just like this. Positive. Positive. Alright, um, so this morning we're actually going to go back to that same passage again and deal with the same story. And I know you're going, but we did it last week. Why don't we do it? I mean, we've got lots of time, okay? It's still five weeks to Christmas, lots of time to do all sorts of stuff. But this morning, instead of focusing on the whole question of who he is, because that often gets to be the focus of the passage, but to ask the next question of what is it that he promised he would do? What's he going to do? And so, with that in mind, who is this? Bob! And what does Bob do? Bob the Builder. Yes, Bob the Builder. And who's this? That's Wesley, in case you can't see so clearly. That's Wes. What does Wes do? The teacher. Yes, I was wondering if somebody would say he referees soccer. And no, not so much. No, not so much. Wes is a teacher. Yes, and who's this? Where is he this morning? Where is he? How is he working? Is he doing that? Jason the Builder. Um, much better looking than Bob the Builder, but much the same thing. Is that all? How about any others? That's the lot. Okay, so, so it's nice to know who they are, but it's also nice sometimes to know what they do. So uh, that's kind of where we're going this morning. So if you have a Bible, you'd like to turn there, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, once more, and um, Jesus and the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, that place of the cave with the spring bubbling out from, from underneath it, right? Uh, the, where they worship the god Pan. From verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Alright, so, like I said, like I said last week, knowing who Jesus is leads us to identify, leads him to identify who we are, to define who we are. So the whole thing was, who do you say I am? Okay, well great, now let me tell you who you actually are. But we didn't quite, last week, get to this question of what it is that Jesus promised that he would do. What did he say that he was going to do? And it's real simple this morning, well, it'll get complicated, but the initial thing is real simple because there's just two things that Jesus says, right? There are two verbs at the end of that passage. I will build and I will give. I will build my church and I will give you keys. That's where we're going this morning, those two things. So we're going to start with I will build and we're going to I will build my church. Five words and we'll look at them very quickly one by one. I will build my church. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say to Peter, you, Peter, need to build my church? I mean, what a relief for you and I that it wasn't up to Peter to build the church. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say to the disciples, listen guys, eight months time, I'm going to die and go to heaven, and then it's all on you. This whole thing that I started rests on your shoulders. It's up to you to keep it going. Uh, I'm somewhat relieved that that was not the case. I'm very glad that Jesus did not say, Peter, you're the rock, and we're going to build this church on you as the foundation, because Peter is a very shaky foundation. Next week, Peter's going to say, um, no Jesus, you can't go to the cross, that's a bad idea, we should do something else, right? In, in, in eight months' time, Peter's going to go, Jesus who? Sorry? No, never heard of the guy before, no idea what you're talking about, right? He's going to deny that he even knew Jesus. A couple of years later, Peter's going to deny the very gospel itself, and Paul's going to have a word with him, because Peter goes, you know what, I think let's go back to the whole Jewish culture thing, and uh, let's stop eating bacon sandwiches. And Peter says, Paul says, that's a denial of the gospel. So if, if we're building the church on Peter as the foundation, that's, that's a rather shaky foundation to build. I think we know, we said it last week anyway, and I think most of you will know, is that we when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you're the rock, and I'm going to build my church on this rock, that kind of the words and the implications used here is that, Peter, you're a pebble, and I'm going to build on bedrock. You're a little stone, and I'm going to build on a great big massive boulder buried in the ground. Uh, Peter is not the builder or the architect of the church. And the good news is, neither are you or I. What a relief. And Jesus says, I will build my church. It's going to be built by Him, it's going to be built on Him, and that's good news because the pressure is off us. It doesn't mean that we sit around and do nothing. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. We are the means at His disposal, but ultimately it is He who will build and establish the church. I will. It's a guarantee. He says, I'm going to do it. There's no sense of Jesus here saying, I'm going to try, I'm going to give it my best shot, uh, if nothing else works out, we'll do this church thing. No, it's, I will, it's certain, it's sure. And there's no one, he says, who's going to shut it down, because it's going to happen. There's no flaky building inspector going to come along and complain that Jesus isn't wearing this bright yellow um, 
reflective vest thing, right? He's, there's, there's, that's not happening on Jesus' building site. Nothing's going to hinder the building. I will. I will build. There's a sense here of, a, of the ongoing future tense. It is a building under construction at the moment. The Bible uses lots of metaphors for the church. It talks about it as being a family and about a tree and things that grow and all sorts. But in this instance, he's talking about it being built. He builds it. He's going to put it together. And all illustrations break down, but anyway, um, within this whole metaphor, this whole image of the church being a building, you are both the tool and the aggregate. You are both the spade and the brick, right? You are called, they are called living stones, and Jesus assembles the living stones and stacks them up and glues them together and holds them in place to build a temple. He is building a living temple. And as a brick, you can't really say, I don't want to be part of the building. There's a lot of people who do that, right? There's a lot of people like, ah, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't really want to be part of the church. I'm just going to loaf around over there and do my own thing. That's not how it works when we build stuff, right? So if you're going to build something at home and you order the bricks, the idea is not to then just leave the bricks in a pile outside. You assemble them in a particular order in order to build something. And if you buy a bunch of bricks and then leave them scattered in the garden, well, that's not really what the bricks are there for. And if you go to pick up one of those bricks and the brick should speak, because that happens, right? And the brick would say, no, no, please don't add me to the building. I don't want to be part of the building. I'm quite perfectly happy being a brick all by myself. That, that's not what bricks are there for, right? I know some of us have bricks scattered. I have bricks scattered around my garden. I know some of you are the same. But the point of bricks generally is to put them together in a particular order to build something. You're a brick called to be part of the building. But you're also a shovel. You're also the, 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 the means by which Jesus uses to build the temple, to build this living church. So he's building. I will build mine. It's his church. Not your church. Not my church. This building belongs to the Methodist church members. But the church of Jesus is not your church or my church. It's his church. And what that means is he gets to approve the design. He gets to say what it looks like. He gets to say what happens in it and what doesn't happen in it. Because it's his church. The I will build my church. What is it ultimately that he's building? I could get a couple of builders together and say, build me something. I could get Kevin and Jason and Ronnie and sit them down and say, guys, uh, you guys are builders, come and build me something. And they would say, cool, what do you want to build? And my response could be, you guys are the builders, build whatever you like. But I don't think that would be helpful, right? Generally, you have some idea of what, what, what you want to be built. Do you want a mansion? Do you want a doghouse? If I want a doghouse, those three guys would do a great job because I think they all spend a fair amount of time in the doghouse, right? Jesus knows what he wants. He's going to build a church. He's not going to build a ministry or a movement. He's building a church. And so just to be clear, that despite what some people might say and think from time to time, church is Jesus' idea. 
It's his plan. It's his intention. It's what he intended to build from the very start. But what is that? What is church? And that's what I want to try and get to this morning. Because we know, I think we know, that church isn't just a physical building. We often would, we would call this building the church, and it's interesting for a change does meet in a church building and not in a school hall. Um, but we, we, I think we know that although we can talk about the building as being a church building, we understand the church is more than that. The church is not the building. The church is the people that occupy the building. Now, bear with me. I've only got 30 minutes this morning. This could take two hours. So I'm only going to talk about a very little bit about what church is. There's a whole lot more that could be said about this. But let's just, the word itself just means assembly. There's a nice Greek word, ecclesia. Um, and it just means a gathering of people. And it's actually a political term. It's actually a political word. Um, so in Acts chapter, I think it's Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is in the city of Ephesus, and the people in Ephesus get so fed up with the message of the gospel that they start a riot. The whole city, we're told, is in uproar, and the whole city crams itself into the stadium at the edge of Ephesus, and for two hours they're shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, and off with Paul's head, kill the man. Um, they have to get the Roman soldiers in to calm things down. And what's interesting is that what's happening in there is an ecclesia. It's a gathering. The rioting crowd are having church. How cool is that, right? So I've never really paid attention to all the excitement and fun and games in uh, Brackenfell on Friday. Yeah, at the school, of, there's a bit of a there was a bit of a church going on there, right? It was an ecclesia. It was a gathering. And it was a gathering for a particular purpose. A bunch of people got together, so the EFF went and, and, and uh, protested about stuff going on in the school. But there was a gathering of people with a specific purpose in mind. And uh, the Greek word would be they had ecclesia. They did what we would translate as church. So I'm not suggesting that church should be a riot. I don't think we should, but um, probably not. But church is simply a gathering of people for a specific purpose. And that word Ecclesia gets hijacked by Jesus, and Jesus says, that's what we're doing now. We're gathering together a, a people, a, a new community, we're gathering them together. Now, that's not something new, though, because God has always been about gathering people together in community. It's much the story of the Old Testament, of God gathering people to himself. Think of Mount Sinai, where the people of Israel are rescued from Egypt, brought through the desert, and are assembled. They're gathered in the desert at the foot of a mountain, and they're gathered, um, identified as God's people, and gathered around the Lord. But what happens not long after that? There's apostasy, and the gathered people scatter. They're scattered by God. And, and so you get, end up getting this ebb and flow through the Old Testament of God's people being gathered and then being scattered and then being gathered and then being scattered. And there's this whole story right through the Old Testament. And now Jesus comes along and says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to gather. And the gather won't be at, a, at the foot of a mountain around the law, but it's going to be on the bedrock, bedrock of me around grace. This new gathering. And so the church simply is 
God's gathered people. And as I said, there's a whole lot of other things we can say because we, we understand also that not only, we're not just church on Sunday morning, we're also church on, on Tuesday afternoon and, and Thursday night when we're, when we're scattered in our homes. Uh, but the very word gathering implies that there is something about God's people being in one place. The church is most itself when it gathers together in worship. We understand also that there is the idea of the universal church and the local church. The universal church being all of God's people in all the places at all times that we're all God's people ought to be as a church. But even, and that, that would be difficult to get them all together in one place, right? And yet, as difficult as it is, that's again the promise of the New Testament, that there will come a day when all of God's people across all the ages from every culture will be gathered together. That's where the book of Revelation leads us to, that we're all gathered in the, in the, in the new and final kingdom of Christ, worshipping Him together. So the, the church is this idea of a universe all over the place church, but the Bible is also very clear about local churches, local communities that are gathered together in specific times and places. So again, the emphasis on gathering. Now, over the last 15 years, there's been debate over the nature of what the church looks like. And that debate has picked up steam in the last eight months. And the debate, the debate is this. Is online church, church? So until a couple of months ago, that was just pretty much an abstract question that was only dealt with by big churches because they were the only ones really who had the means and the, the ability and the inclination to live stream their services. But since COVID, Every pastor in every church has become a tele-evangelist. Um, I need a white suit and a better hairstyle. Um, and the question has been then, does watching church on Facebook Live count as being church? And some say, yes, of course it does. Welcome to the new world, right? We're an online community. The new generation lives online. We have Twitter communities and Facebook communities and there is authenticity online. There's in fact one online church that has been going for several years now. But they, they don't ever meet in person. They are purely online. And you even are able to create your own little avatar. If you don't know what that is, ask someone else. Um, but you can create your avatar and your avatar goes to confession. And your avatar goes to communion. And you send your avatar for baptism even. So there you go. So some would say, yes, online church, of course it's online church. Others, of course, will say, no, 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 it can't be church unless we're all in the same room at the same place at the same time, and it just can't be church. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, interestingly, the Bible doesn't say anything about the internet. <laughs> what a surprise. And I looked, I looked all week, I'm like, really? But, I hope I'm not stretching things a bit here, but, let me say this, the Apostle Paul did use the technology of his day for the advance of the gospel and the establishment of the church. So Paul wrote letters to people all over the place, and he probably wrote on vellum, which is animal skin, which was, at the time, new technology. It was brand new, exciting stuff. Papyrus was what had been used for years and years and years, but papyrus doesn't really last very long. And I can imagine that some churches, some people were excited to find Paul's letters in Vellum. But there were probably 
be some churches who are going, no, no, this can't be right. It's not a papyrus. This new, you know, this new technology stuff, rubbish, can't be from God if it's not on papyrus. Paul also wrote in the coding of the day, right? He wrote in Greek. He could have just kept it to ancient Hebrew, but he wrote in Greek in the language that everyone knew and everyone understood. And again, some people may well have said to Paul, that's not King James Latin. How dare you? Um, but he used what was considered to be the kind of the advanced technology of the day, speaking the language that everyone understood. And then Paul also used the other te major technological advance of the day. Instead of using the, the information superhighway, he used the Roman superhighway. The Romans were great at building roads. It was one of the new things that Rome brought about. And it allowed travel all over the world. It made the world a global village. All through Roman roads. So Paul used the technology of the day. But what Paul also said, regularly in his letters, was, I wish I could see you face to face. I'd rather be with you in your presence. I'd rather we dealt with this. I'm writing it in ink now, but I'd rather we dealt with this when I get there in person. And so what I think what Paul is essentially saying is, I'm using the technology of the day, but I recognize its limitations. And so here's my opinion. And this is just my opinion. It's what I think. I may be wrong. My opinion is we should use technology. We'll carry on broadcasting live uh, for now because we should use technology. But I'd rather see you face to face, you guys that are on my phone at the moment. I'd rather see you face to face. Because there's something about the very word church that means gathered together in one place. And I know that for many of you, you shouldn't come. For many of you, you're diseased. Or you, you might get diseased. So stay at home, please, right? Please. Uh, for many of you, age is against you. Um, I'm not going to mention any names here, but if you think age is against you, you should stay at home and continue to benefit from technology at home. But you know what we're finding, and this is a worldwide thing, over the past six or eight months, in churches around the world, we're finding a very steep up, uptick in what can only be called consumer Christianity. And what that means just is that church is there at my convenience. And it's, I mean, consumer Christianity and the consumer church has been with us for, for hundreds, thousands of years, I guess. It's not just an issue now, but it's become an increasing issue thanks to COVID and thanks to the joys of technology. Because what technology has led us to do is go, I can do church when it's convenient for me. I can do church that meets my needs as and when I think my needs need to be met. COVID's accelerated that. So we're finding at the moment, all over the world, and this is kind of a standard thing wherever you go, that the attendance back in buildings on a Sunday morning is at about 50% of what it was pre-COVID, which is kind of where we're at, I suppose. And those that aren't coming back, the 50% that aren't back, seem to fall into three categories. Those who shouldn't come because they're sick or could get sick or are old or have comorbidities or whatever else, they should stay at home. There are then a second group who have essentially fallen by the wayside, who have basically said, we're not coming back. And that's very sad. 
And then there's a third group of people, those who are saying, it's just more convenient at home. So this is the big stick this morning, and the sharp pointy stick with a poke in the eye, right? Those who, who are going, I'd rather ch watch church from the comfort of my bed, with a cup of tea, where it's warm, and uh, in fact I'll do it later when, when I've got time. And we've turned church into a consumer experience. And what we're really saying in that, we're saying that church is about me. I get fed because I'm watching a sermon, right? I can even do a bit of worship, I can do better worship by watching YouTube than Chris strumming his guitar and getting the keys wrong, right? So I can do better than being in church on Sunday morning, and I'll fit it into my schedule whenever I can find the time. What if church isn't about me and my needs? Let me take a different tack for a moment. Let's leave the, the COVID technology thing for now. Every now and then, I take a weekend off. Right? So just to be clear, I'm not saying thou shalt never take a weekend off and that you have to be on church every Sunday. We'll, we'll get there. Every now and then, though, I take a weekend off. And when I do, I tend not to tell the church that I'm going away. And the reason I don't, and some people get upset with me, why didn't you tell us that you were going away this weekend? And the reason I tend not to tell people that I'm going away is, is this. If I say, I won't be here next Sunday, there are a fair number of people who will say, oh, then I also won't be here next Sunday. If the pastor's away, then I'll be away too. And they tend to say, because Chris is the only preacher worth listening to. Which is, which is awesome. Okay, I just... I've got to say, that's great to hear. It makes my head this big. It's wonderful. But what if pitching up on a Sunday morning isn't just about hearing a sermon? What if whoever it is that's going to preach when I'm away has spent hours all week agonizing over what they're going to say? And he gets up and he says it in a way that just, that just isn't as good as I would. He doesn't have the books that I've got. Doesn't have the looks that I've got. Perhaps <laughs> doesn't have the words that I have. But what if it's not about what you get out of it? What if just for that week the reason for coming to church is for the benefit of the guy who's standing up front and encouraging him as he seeks to serve God in a way that he wouldn't usually? What if it's not about you? Or how about the music? <laughs> I know at the moment we don't have a band and the music's a little soft. Maybe next year we'll be back to drums, piano, electric guitar. Let's hope. And I know, at least I think, that, that you want to feel as though you connect with God in song and in worship. I know that I want to. And even this week, at the beginning of this week, I was trying to dig around and just think, how do we, how can we stir our emotion and stir our affection for Jesus so that when we sing on Sunday morning it's with joy and delight and that there's a, we feel moved, how can I get people to cry, you know, tear gas, um, I don't know, because we want emotion and we want it to stir, but, but what if it isn't about that? What if it's not about me and my moment with Jesus? So I, in, in looking for stuff this week, what can make people cry? Um, in looking for that this week, I came across a blog that reminded me of stuff that I know, right? And we know this. Where the guy was saying, oh, just to be 
final, Ephesians 5 tells us to, that we are to sing to one another. And our singing isn't necessarily about me and Jesus, but singing to each other. And he was saying how often in a lot of churches now, you go to church, and when it's time to sing, the lights are dim, and you're in darkness, and there's big lights on the stage, and the whole thing then becomes just you and your little moment with Jesus, and you have no connection to anyone around you. But what if that's not what it's about? What if it's about Ephesians, singing to one another? What if your voice is added to the voice of others as we sing the songs of salvation to someone who's had a really bad week this week and just needs to hear that Jesus is their cornerstone. And that it's not about you singing to Jesus, but you singing to the person behind you or next to you. Letting them hear that story again that Jesus saves. The point is this. Maybe church isn't about you. And so I get it, right? I, I get that we can't all be at church every week. I know that your life is busy, you've got stuff going on, Gran is coming for lunch and you need to stay home and polish the bathroom taps because she's going to check. Um, I know you've had a bad, bad week and you've worked six days and you just need to stay in bed this morning. I get that. hundred percent get that. But the habit of skipping the gathering of the saints is a bad consumer habit to get into. You may remember last year there was a big hoo-ha when an art student up the north coast and his matric art project with the, where he introduced Ronald McDonald into the painting of The Last Supper. Remember that? 100% clear of what he said. I was actually quite keen to buy his painting and hang it up on our, you know, uh, for Sunday morning. Because what he was saying was this, and he was very clear, he said, I'm not saying in any way that Jesus is a clown. What I am saying is that the church, not me, the church has replaced Jesus with consumerism. And he's right. People want a happy meal at church on Sunday. They want a clown up front, that's why I make you laugh, right? They want a clown up front to make you happy. They want to come to church that offers them a pre-packaged, tasty meal with no real health benefits whatsoever. And I want a happy toy with it to take home with me. And I want to pick it up at a time that is convenient and suits me. And that's a sad indictment on the church, the world around us, the world all over. So let me encourage you not to forsake the gathering of the saints. And this is a medical issue. But, but to embrace what the word church means. The assembly of God's people. The gathering of the saints. And like I said, there's lots more. There's through the week and meeting one another, encouraging one another, and meals together, hospitality, and all of that other stuff that goes on. But at the core essence of the word church, the gathering of the saints. The church is the gathered community, the gathered people of God, and this is how the Reformers put it, where the Gospel is rightly proclaimed and where the sacraments are rightly dispensed. Which kind of goes to the whole thing as well of, can you have church on your surfboard in back line on Sunday morning talking to a couple of your friends about Jesus? And the answer is, no, that's not church. That's good fellowship. Not church. I will build my church. At 
the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, that's what gets people going, right? Often it's, often it's stated as the gates of hell will not overcome it. And there are, there are a couple of meanings, a couple of interpretations behind this. Generally, what, what that's taken to mean is that we are at war with the forces of darkness. We're at war with the denizens of hell. And in the end, the church will prevail. And I think that's right. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And then some smart guy point, points out that gates are not an offensive weapon. The church is not under attack. It's not as though the devil is charging at us with a set of trendy doors to beat down the most of right? The doors are a defensive thing of a city under siege. That the church is what's launching the offensive. The church is launching the attack on the gates of hell. And the gates will not get knocked over. And again, I think that's right. I think that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I wonder, and I may be completely wrong again here, but I just wonder, what if, what if the gates are about something else? See, God, gates aren't always about keeping people out. Sometimes gates are about keeping people in. Think about gates in prison. Yes, on the one hand, you want to stop people breaking in to help people break out, but the gates are there to essentially keep people in. If you've got a, a property with an electric fence, you generally will have the fence with the, you know, the, the angle of the fence this way going outside, pointing out to keep people out so they can't just, you know, they, they struggle to climb over. The, if you've got teenagers, you might want a fence on the inside, right? I mean, something you need a fence that goes like this, right? Some out and others in. So, you know, sometimes gates are about keeping people in. I wonder if this has got something to do with Hades, the gates of Hades. See, some translations will say the gates of hell, and if you've got a, a, my version says the gates of Hades, but then there's a little footnote that says some versions say the gates of hell. Uh, th those two words, Hades and hell, kind of got mixed up uh, over the years, and they end up becoming the same thing, but they're really not. Hell tends to imply... Um, the, the kind of the place of punishment for the devil and his demons and whatever, and it's a bad place. But Hades just literally means the place of the dead. That's all. Just where the dead are. Um, and when you consider that Jesus is with the disciples at this spring, and the mythology of the time was that this spring was one of the gateways into the realm of the dead, so people would come to communicate with the dead there. They'd come to speak to Granddad. They'd offer a sacrifice, and then they'd shout, Granddad, hope you can hear us. Grandma's fine. She's a little deaf, but she's great. Hope you're well. And, you know, so we communicate with the dead. So what if when Jesus talks about the gates of Hades, uh, um, what, if, what if that's really just a reference to this place of the dead? What, what if this is not so much about raiding hell, and what if this is perhaps about the power of the gates of death that cannot any longer hold the dead in prison? I mean, what happened when Jesus died? God, he got made in a grave and he was, in a sense, in Hades. Not in hell, but in the place of the dead. And could the gates of that prison hold him in? And of course not. He blew the gates down. And so what if this is about the end of death, the resurrection of Jesus, and the great future resurrection of the saints? 
perhaps even more, that we are dead in our sin, but He has broken down the gates of Hades. Death could not hold them, it cannot and will not hold us, and He brings us to life. And that the church, proclaiming the good news, sees that the gates that keep people locked in the, in, in the, in the death of their sins, sees those gates knocked down. So Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Very quickly then, I will build my church, and I will give you the keys. Just three things, the keys, the kingdom, and the things that will be loosed and bound. So, very quickly, what is the kingdom? So we did it right at the beginning of the service this morning, kind of what is the kingdom of God, people in God's place, and under God's rule. And just to be clear that the kingdom is not the same as the church. In fact, this, this here in Matthew 16 is the first time that the word church appears in the Gospel of Matthew. But the word kingdom has appeared often. Jesus arrives announcing the kingdom, declaring the kingdom, telling people to repent for the kingdom is here, saying the kingdom is upon you. He's preached parables about the kingdom. And now finally here he talks about the church. The, kingdom, the story up till now has all been about the kingdom is in your midst. So there are lots of opinions about the kingdom. Some people think that the kingdom is this future event, and when we pray your kingdom come, we pray for some millennial future of uh, where Jesus is going to come back and set up a political kingdom in Israel somewhere. I just, I don't think that's going to happen at all. I think it's quite clear that the kingdom is already here. He established the kingdom at the cross. But that there is an eternity to come when the kingdom will be fully and finally established. And so we, we kind of live in this overlap moment where the kingdom is both now and not yet. There is a sense of the kingdom breaking in and breaking through, but in its fullness it is still to come. And kingdom just means the rule or the reign of Jesus. A kingdom needs, needs a king, it needs subjects. Our earthly kingdoms need borders. And well, we have a king, is Jesus. He has subjects, you and me. And the borders of his kingdoms are the, 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 of his kingdom are the hearts of men, the hearts of men and women who love him and who call him king. His kingdom is his rule and reign over redeemed people. And so it, it does get a little bit uh, blurred around the edges when it's what's kingdom, what's church, uh, to say that perhaps the church is the outpost of the kingdom in a dark world. That the church is the means by which the kingdom is established in this world. And just as Jesus builds his church, Jesus too will build his kingdom. So again, the Bible uses lots of different words, lots of different imagery for this. And so, so through Matthew already, we've seen, if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you've seen already things like that we enter the kingdom, that the kingdom draws near to us, that we inherit the kingdom, that we can possess the kingdom, that we can receive the kingdom, we can go look for the kingdom, we can work for the kingdom, but we're never told to build the kingdom or to establish the kingdom. We're called to proclaim the kingdom, but it's God ultimately who gives the kingdom. So that's the kingdom. If that's the kingdom, what are the keys? What are the keys to the kingdom? So there's a sense of, well, Jesus has just built his house, right? And if you build a house, the build is finished, and he hands you the keys. He says, there you go. Is that what it is? I don't think that's quite what Jesus is talking about here. So what, are the, what are the keys to open? Something that Peter's been given the keys, and Peter gets to be the one who decides who gets to come in and out of heaven. That's not what's going on, and that's not what this is about either. The keys to unlock the kingdom is simply this, preaching the gospel, declaring the good news, announcing the good news that the king is here. That's what opens the doors and ushers people in to the kingdom. 
the binding and leucine thing? Like I said last week, it's got nothing to do with getting more bran in your diet. And it's certainly not about controlling demons. Uh, there's some very strange thoughts here that some people have about spiritual authority that I can bind things and loose things and talk to devils and who knows what else. Is that, that doesn't tie in with this passage or with the rest of Scripture. Again, I think simply put, it's just simply announcing the good news that opens the kingdom to many and shuts the kingdom to some. And some, by the announcement of the good news, are loosed, are set free from their bondage, and others remain bound in the unforgiveness of their sin. So here's the thing this morning in conclusion, because uh, we've gone on now. You are a kingdom people. You are ruled by a king. And the king has gathered you together to be his church. And it's his church that advances the kingdom through worship and witness and service and discipleship and community and justice. The church displays and declares that the kingdom of God is here. And the church is you and I, the gathered saints of the people of God. And this morning, when we pray your kingdom come, we're offering this a cry of loyalty, a cry of treason, and a cry of conquest. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your church. We thank you that you build it, you establish it. We thank you that you call men and women to yourself, that you gather the people called them your own. And Lord, we thank you this morning for this church and for this community. We thank you that you've called us to this unique place and in this unique time. May we be your people, your church, your community. A community that love one another, that loves you and cares for this world. And may we Declare the good news and see your kingdom advance. Lord, even this week, may your kingdom come. May the rule of Jesus extend even in our own hearts. As we offer again this morning this, this cry of loyalty, that we are loyal, long to be loyal to you, incline our hearts to love you, that we may eagerly long for you to come. May there be within us this cry of treason that we will not uh, bow to the God of this world and the idols around us, that we will resist him and bow to your kingdom. We pray that cry of conquest, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Conquer hearts, conquer our hearts by the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name.